Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek podcast. I'm your host, Pato. Today, I'm going to be talking about a few horror movies, hence the spooky intro. Um, a few films that I got the chance to see on the big screen, one of which is a bit iffy. The other one I actually thoroughly enjoyed, so I'm looking forward to talking about that one. Um, but yeah, a bit of a different episode, I suppose, considering that thematically both films are horror in nature. So it'll be cool to talk about both of those. But before we get stuck into that, I will get some housekeeping out of the way. Make sure you follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter um, at OzMovieGeek. Uh, just to keep up to date with the latest movie news, reviews, and clues, I do update my pages as regularly as I can um, and do post a lot of movie news, uh, a few review snippets. Like I said last week, I am being inundated at the moment with a lot of Blu-rays and DVDs sent to me. So to make sure that I cover all bases and review all the films that I possibly can, I am doing a few little brief snippets of reviews online at the moment, just so you can see what I'm watching and keep up to date with a lot of those films. Because, yeah, like I said, sometimes I just don't have the time to go through and review every film individually. So I have been doing this as an updated way of me saying, hey, I've watched this as well, and I'm not going to be talking about it, but just writing a little bit about it. Um, so I'll touch on that um, project, I suppose, uh, touch up it in a way so that it's a bit more aesthetically pleasing. I'm just finding a way to present it at the moment. At the moment, I'm just doing a montage of photos and posters and just giving a brief snippet of the review and where you can pick up the film either on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, but I will get better at that. But at the moment, I'm just sort of finding a way uh, that is good for both me and the company that's supplying me with the films on physical media. But yeah, that's that's in its early stages at the moment. I have only done two so far. So yeah, I'll get better at it. But at the moment, it's just sort of trying to work out which is the best way to go about it. If you haven't checked out my reviews as well for True History of the Kelly Gang, the Keep on Home Media and also Jojo Rabbit. Please check out those. Um, yeah, that was my last episode. I had a lot of fun recording that. And I'll have more content coming to you guys soon. Uh, once I get into a bit more of a routine, I'll have more reviews, special reviews and that kind of thing. I'm hoping to have a review of My Bloody Valentine, uh, the original release from Shock Entertainment. I'm hoping to have a review of that out in the coming weeks. Um as I was lucky enough to receive it on Blu-ray, and it is such a cool release, so I'm looking forward to reviewing that, but hopefully I'll have the time to get it out before Valentine's Day. If not, um, I'm sorry, but I will try my best to get it out as soon as possible. But that's enough housekeeping for the time being. Let's get stuck into some movies. So the films I saw this week, I saw Underwater, which is really cool. I had to go out of my way a bit to see this one. I went to Orange, currently living in Bathurst, so it was cool to... Um, go across there and check out their cinema too. The Odeon is very similar to my old theatre back in Tamworth, so it was really cool to actually go there and experience that. So it was cool, yeah, to see Underwater, the William Eubank-styled uh, thriller. Yeah, I think he did a really good job with that one, so I'm excited to talk about it. The other film I saw was The Grudge, the second American remake of the Japanese classic. Uh, I, I don't know. We'll get into that. I have a lot of problems with that film. It is fundamentally broken, but... We'll get stuck into that a little later. And this week's home media release is brought to you by Umbrella Entertainment, and that is their re-release of the 1992 film Congo, um, which has made its way to Blu-ray for the first time. So that's really cool, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. I've left a link down below for you guys to pick up this one from Umbrella Entertainment's website. Sign up to them today and receive 10% off your first order, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I've left a link for you guys to pick up that one. So thank you to them for 
supply me with that copy on Blu-ray and I'm looking forward to talking about it. All right, but I think that's enough. So let's get stuck into the first movie I saw, which was Underwater. Directed by William Eubank and starring Kristen Stewart, TJ Miller, Jessica Henwick, John Gallagher Jr. and Vincent Castle. Uh, the film follows a crew of aquatic researchers who work to get to safety after an earthquake devastates their subterranean laboratory at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. But the crew has more than the ocean seabed to fear. Uh, this was a film I was looking forward to, mainly because that first trailer really hooked me. I also like these isolated thrillers. Sometimes they can be iffy, but I really do enjoy the way that uh, this film felt. I really like the way that it dealt with some of the more strange Lovecraftian-esque uh, imagery. Um, and I really like the breakneck speed of this film too. It sort of starts and then it just doesn't let you go until the very end. So I do enjoy a film that's just a fast-paced thriller. We don't get enough of them. So I, I am excited to talk about that film um, because there's so much going on too that it's just really, it's really interesting. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. So let's get stuck into it. Um, the positives of the film. I really like the scope. Uh, like I said, I really like the isolated setting for a film like this. And the scope of the story is quite small in nature. But once you see the size of this research center at the bottom of the trench, it's huge. So it's really cool to actually see um, the intricacies of this giant research center. And I really like that. I also liked the band of heroes uh, joining together as well to get out of this situation. They're an unlikely group of people. You have Kristen Stewart, who's playing Nora. She was a really isolated person, I suppose, um, down on this research center. And we don't really get a lot of backstory to her. Like I said, it just starts. The film really just starts. We open with um, a bit of a layout of the actual uh, research center. So it goes through the different um, areas through like a blueprint uh, format, which was really cool. And then we jump straight into Kristen Stewart talking to herself, looking at herself in the mirror, and we jump straight into the action. The An earthquake seemingly happens, and our crew start to join together to get out of this messy situation. So I really like that, and I really like the group of characters. Uh, yeah, Kristen Stewart's character was really cool. TJ Miller shows up for a bit of comic relief uh, as Paul. I didn't like his character a great deal. He was kind of annoying, and some of his one-liners weren't very good. Um, but at the same time, it's a bit of levity in a really horrible situation. So I enjoyed him for that aspect. Um, we also have Vincent Castle, who plays uh, the leader of this group. Uh, he's the captain of the research center. I really liked his character. He was more of a, I don't know, a stern captain type, I guess a, a genre classic or a genre trope of this um, this specific genre. But I really did like him in the film too. He was a nice guy and it's very rare that you actually see characters who you genuinely like. Uh, Emily, uh, sorry, Jessica Henwick, who plays Emily, um, she was more of a, I guess she was more of a, um, she's more of a fish out of water in this kind of situation. She doesn't have a great deal of experience down in this trench. She's actually a research assistant. Um, she's, I believe she's engaged to John Gallagher Jr. Smith. So the two of them have a bit of a relationship going on. And Nora, uh, Kristen Stewart's character, is really good friends with John Gallagher Jr. outside of their work. Um, so there was a nice dynamic between the team. And I really liked the growth of Jessica Hamwick's character, Emily. She sort of comes into her own. She's a bit of a coward and a bit scared during the situation, which you would be because you're not expecting this giant research center to explode. 
Um, but that's what happened. So she's got to get herself out of this situation. I really liked that aspect of the film. Um, and her character growth was probably the most interesting. Nora sort of is our main character. So we're following her during this film and all these different things that happen to these characters, their encounters with the monsters and everything. It's more told from Nora's perspective. But at the same time, we really get some different um, imagery and different scenes involving the different cast members to see that dynamic and how they work together. There wasn't a great deal of time spent to set these characters up. Like I said, it just jumps into it, but we get to know them along the way. And the dialogue use was interesting too. I found it to be very mundane, but I think it worked for this type of scenario because the dialogue use would be the dialogue I would imagine characters who had spent the amount of time together in this situation and this environment that's how they would talk to one another. Um, and I think that goes, you know, on that realistic scale, you really do feel that the dialogue spoken between these characters is what they would be saying to one another. And I think it really worked, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, the scenery as well, there's some really nice scenery. Um, the cinematography is very clean. And the shot composition, I do have some issues with it um, that I'll get into a little later, but... Um, I did really enjoy the scenery. Um, we had some really nice shots, especially later in the film, of these creatures. And like I said, there was some love crafting imagery that sort of showed up towards the end, which was really cool. Um, for those who don't know, a lot of the love crafting stuff is these giant monsters and really grotesque monster designs too. I would compare it to Gal Melnero del Toro's work. A lot of his work is very much love crafting and that um, gothic influence. And I could see that a bit, especially with the giant monster that appears at the end. It felt like a Del Toro creation, um, but I really did like that. Uh, the performances as well were really good. Kristen Stewart does carry a majority of the film uh, on her shoulders, and I thought she was really good in the film. Now, I know a lot of people don't like her per se, but I think she does offer a lot if she is cast in the right role. Um, she cops a lot of shit still for Twilight and that Snow White and the Huntsman film. But I think since then, she's been doing a lot of interesting projects and she really has come into her own. And I really do like um, the way that she handles herself on screen, especially among um, a relatively strong cast as well. Uh, and I do think she's really good. Uh, that Charlie's Angels film that came out last year, I really didn't like it, but I thought that she was really good in it. And here she is great again. So I think she's a good performer. She just needs the right material and the right filmmaker working with her, and I think surrounded by a good supporting cast too. Um, but like I said, I really enjoyed TJ Miller too. His character was kind of annoying at points, but I did like his performance. I just wish that he got to do a little more of his TJ Millerisms. Um, we do know that he's really funny. If you haven't seen Silicon Valley, you should. He's hilarious in that show. Now, I know there's a bit of um, off-screen controversy regarding him and uh, some claims made against him by... Um, a college student uh, when he was back at college. I don't exactly know where that is at, but I'm not going to make a call on him outside of his professional career just yet because I don't really know enough about the situation to really judge him for these accusations and whether or not they're true as well. Um, and I think that's a discussion for another time, but I did think he was quite good in the film. Jessica Hamwick was good too. Um, and John Gallagher Jr. is probably the most underutilized cast member. I'm a big fan of his. If you haven't seen Hush or uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, he is a really good actor, um, but he's just really not given it a lot here. And it's a bit of a shame because I think he is a strong performer. And when I saw his name in the cast, I'm like, I would actually like to see him in this kind of role because this fits his criteria really well. And the films that he's been doing does fit 
yeah, exactly what this film is. Like, 10 Cloverfield Lane has a lot of parallels to this film. So, um, I was expecting him to have a bigger part in the film, but he doesn't really. He sort of shies away a bit and, yeah, you don't really see a lot of him. But at the same time, I did enjoy him for when he was on screen. And Vincent Castle was really good too. Um, I'm a big fan of his, always have been since Ocean's 12. Don't love that film, but he is good in it. Um, and I think he's really good here too as the captain. I really liked his uh, acts of heroism. And you all also understood his care for the people that he was trying to save. Um, and I really like that. Uh, he gives Nora a few pep talks. You could really feel their bond there. And a few comments um, during the film show you that they do have a relationship outside of work and they have become quite close friends. And I think um, there's a piece of dialogue where Vincent Castle's character forgets the age of his kid. Um, and she's like, oh, it's, he's um, the same age as, um, nearly the same age as me. So it makes me think that maybe she, or the kid passed away. Um, and maybe that's what that was a call to. I'm not entirely sure because it was brushed over um, pretty quickly, but uh, I really did enjoy his character. and I liked that dynamic between him and Kristen Stewart, and I thought their chemistry was quite good. Um, and I really liked the contained storyline. I think the storyline really works for this type of movie. I like that it's really isolated and that the story just keeps flowing onwards and doesn't really give you a chance to breathe, which in a situational-type film like this, it's what you come to expect. You need the story to keep flowing because if it slows down at any point, then you're going to lose interest at certain points during the film. And I think that it does keep that breakneck speed going um, to keep you engaged during the entirety of the film. And it definitely does that because from start to finish, you really are engaged with what's going on. A few little technical issues that I'll get into definitely detract from that to, to make it... I guess, a little bit mundane in certain points. But at the same time, I really did enjoy the breakneck speed and the contained storyline because we don't get enough of those situational-based thrillers anymore. You need a villain. You need, you know, to check those lists, you know. You need the characters to disappear in horrific ways and that sort of thing, where this film just felt like it was, you know, calling back to Alien. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing. A lot of science fiction films do do that. But here, I think it needed to be like that, so I'm glad that it was. Um, I do have a few negatives with the film, um, most of them revolving around that third act. The film never reaches another level, it just sort of plateaus a little, which was disappointing. I like the ending a lot, I just wish there was a little more time spent with these characters that get us to that point. Um, the ending just felt really rushed, especially in that third act. Once they get to the drill that they need to and get to those um, shuttles to get out of this situation, the film just really does rush to the finish line, which was a bit of a shame. I wish it just sort of had a moment to breathe in this situation. Like I said, I enjoyed the breakneck speed of the film, but I wish that it had slowed down for a bit more character depth and character growth uh, during those sequences, especially towards the end in that third act. I just think it would have really added to the film and added to the tension and really would have made the ending feel a little more complete. Um, rather, we're left feeling... You know, satisfied, I guess, with the way that it did wrap up. I just wish that the explanation to the wrap up was a little more explored um, rather than sort of rushed. And I think that would have added to the film and I would have enjoyed it a little more if it had have done that. But nevertheless, I think it's a little complaint, but the third act definitely didn't reach that heightened level. It sort of just plateaued. It never really, yeah, escalated any further. It nearly does at one point when they're going through um, to the drill and you're going through these creatures, and they're all like in hibernation near the entrance point. Um, 
that was spooky and creepy and I liked it, but it didn't really go any further. There was an easy solution and then they were inside. It didn't really draw out enough. I would have liked it to draw out a little more. But that leads into another complaint I have, and that is the shaky cam. A few shots felt a little derivative, um, as it used shaky cam a little too often. Um, I like when it's used appropriately, like um, an example that's used all the time, but is the Bourne films. They have shaky cam throughout them, but it does feel natural to that storyline. Here, I just think shaky cam doesn't really work. I know that it's a fast you know, breakneck speed uh, experience. But at the same time, Shaky Cam doesn't really emphasize that. I think the pace of the plot music can do that as well. It kind of felt like gravity in a way as well. Um, and I think you, there's other ways around it. I think if you had to use steady cam shots and maybe lit some of the scenes a little better. Now, I know they're in the Marianas Trench, but they do have headlights and everything. So you could have lit a few of those scenes a little better so we could have seen a little more of what was going around. Now, I know that the film was a lower-budgeted film. I know that it had a budget of around, I think it was around $48 million, um, which does seem like a lot, but I guess when you're dealing with these big stars and trying to um, use special effects and that sort of thing, it does become quite pricey. Now, I think that you could have maybe, I don't know, cut a little of the budget out and made it a little isolated with a little less CGI. You don't necessarily need the CGI um, on certain shots, sure, but... On other shots, you could have used practical effects. Now, I know that can be more expensive at times, but if it helped with that underwater imagery, the murkiness of everything going on, the dimly lit scenes in the shaky cam, then I would have taken that over. Shaky cam is used a lot in horror and thriller movies to get around actually showing creatures and that sort of thing. And I think that's what it was used for here because we never really get a clean shot of what the creatures look like. Even the big creature at the end, it's shot from a distance and in the dark, so you don't really see what the creature looks like. You have a rough idea of what it could look like, but we don't really see it. Um, and I think if we had a seen it, it would have added a little to it because the film isn't scary in any sense of the word. I, did, I wasn't scared throughout at all. There was one jump scare that kind of got me, but I could see it coming a mile away. Um, but I think if you, I don't know, trim a little of the budget off, maybe center the camera a little more, uh, light the scenes a little more, just so you could actually see what's going on and remove some of that shaky cam. You could have a really, really good film on display here. But I think a few budgetary restrictions, maybe studio involvement as well, could have interfered with the overall product. This film was on the shelf for quite some time. Uh, 20th Century Fox and Disney, of course, merged at the end of 2017. Uh, the deal went through in 2018. Um, and now in 2019, 2020, it's official. Uh, it was a long procedure. So this film was actually shot back in 2017. But amongst the chaos of merging these two giant corporations, the film got lost amongst the shuffle. And I can see that it would have been a little difficult from the Disney perspective to actually market this film. It is a very strange film in regards to, um, I guess, its plot and the similarities drawn between this and Alien are uncanny. But you can't help it because if you've got an isolated um, situation with creatures on... a essentially a station, like a space station, but instead it's in the ocean, you're going to get those comparisons. And I think that's what Fox were worried about. And then Disney also came into that worry because they're like, we don't know how to market this film. This is a really hard film to market. It's not really aimed towards kids. It's aimed at more towards um, older audiences. I'm not saying kids can't enjoy it. There were a couple of kids in my screening, actually. It was a busy screening. Um, but I think 
that's part of the reason that the film maybe uses a bit of that shaky cam to hide a few things, maybe so it doesn't scare younger audiences so younger audience can see it. I honestly don't know, but it was very strange, and I think that that shaky cam does detract a little from the film. Um, I have an example. Um, there was a sequence that would have been a lot more effective with Christian Stewart and Vincent Castle. They're taken by one of the creatures. The pressure from the water means that she has to let go of Vincent Castle, Otherwise, they both die uh, as the captain makes a sacrifice. A really good scene in concept. However, the only reason I knew who was um, who was who in this sequence was because I heard the dialogue and I could work out which characters were talking to one another and I couldn't see what was going on until after it happened. And that was kind of disappointing because afterwards I saw, oh, Vincent Castle just died. Okay. Uh, we didn't really see that because of the way that it was shot. And I think if it was a little more focused, you would have been able to see that. Um, a little bit of sound mixing problems as well. Some of the underwater scenes where they're speaking to one another, it's meant to be muffled. I get it. But at the same time, you could have made it a little more clearer because I couldn't really hear what was going on. Um, and a lot of the time when characters are talking to one another, the dialogue does become really jumbled and muffled and you can't really see or hear who's talking to one another. So that becomes an issue when you can't really see what's going on and you can't really make out who's talking because the audio is mixed really poorly. Um, it's just a bit of a shame. I like some of the sound design and sound mixing, but some of those sequences underwater were unbearable because it was so muffled and I couldn't hear what was going on. But nevertheless, Underwater does have its flaws, but I really did enjoy it as a film. Um, so my verdict. Underwater was a surprisingly tense thriller with a great lead turn from Kristen Stewart and some great visuals as well. I'm looking forward to owning this one on 4K when it comes out. And I'm going to give Underwater a 7.5 out of 10. I did really enjoy this one, guys. It did have some issues, but I, I did overall enjoy the experience in the theater. It was breakneck speed, fast pace. It doesn't go for too long, has great performances. It's just some of those technical issues definitely detract from the overall product for me. But overall, I really did enjoy this film. So if you get the chance to, go and see Underwater, because I know it's not doing very well at the box office. So the more people that go and see it, the better. So definitely go and see that one if you get the chance, guys. That's Underwater. Now let's go to the second movie I saw this night. And that is The Grudge, uh, the second American remake of uh, just a, a really dumb franchise. So let's get stuck into The Grudge. The Grudge 2020 was directed by Nicholas Pesky and stars Andrea Riceboro, Damien Bashir, John Cho, Lynn Shay, and Jackie Weaving. And after a young housewife murders her family in her own home, a single mother and young detective try to investigate and solve the case. Later, she discovers the house is cursed by a vengeful ghost that dooms those who enter it with a violent death. Now she runs to save herself and her son from a demonic spirit from the cursed house in her neighborhood. This is the second American remake of the Grudge series. Like I said in my intro, I'm not a huge fan of this series. I just feel like it's a one-and-done story. Unlike the Rings films, I feel those films have a bit of a backstory there. There's different things you can do, and to be honest, they're more consistent than what this Grudge series has been. When I heard this movie was being remade, I was excited because I saw John Cho and Lin Shay were both attached. I'm a big fan of John Cho, and after his work with Screen Gems in a movie called Searching, which if you if you haven't seen it, is a fantastic little found footage-y type horror film um, or thriller. 
it's told from the perspective of a laptop. And I just thought it was really cool. And I'm a big John Cho fan. I think he offers a lot. He's been cast as Spike in the upcoming uh, live action remake of Cowboy Bebop, which I'm excited about as well because it's my favorite anime of all time. So I'm a big John Cho fan. But when I saw the first trailer, I thought, okay, this is a bit worrying. I don't think he's actually the main character and he's not, unfortunately. He's a very sideline character and we don't really see a lot of him during the film. It does follow Andrea Riceborough, which I also do like her a fair bit. Um, but she is a bit underutilized here because she disappears for half of the movie and that leads into a problem I have with it. But we'll get other things out of the way first. So first of all, this film is produced by Sam Raimi. I'm a big Sam Raimi fan. The Evil Dead has been a big influence of mine. Um, I've said it before. I think it is a very inspirational film in the sense that seeing what Sam Raimi was able to do with so little and to be as iconic as what it is and for him to cement his name as well as he has, for him to be attached as a producer on such a project, it always sells well because you can call him a visionary because that's what he is. Sam Raimi has done so well to get where he is today and I think that goes without saying. I think he's such a fantastic filmmaker. So seeing his name attached to a production as a producer, it can go both ways. He produced the Boogeyman series which if you've seen any of those films, they suck. Also from Screen Jam's pictures, but they honestly suck. But some of his more recent work, it really made me think, mm, I wonder which way this is going to go. Could it be like the Poltergeist remake, which sucks? Or could it be like Don't Breathe or um, the Evil Dead remake as well? Because both of those films really had a great sense of horror. And I think it was more the work with that particular filmmaker, Fetty Alvarez. But I was still intrigued to see what would happen. What was new that they thought, hang on, let's do a grudge remake. What did they offer? What could they offer? And they didn't offer a lot. I really despise this movie. But before I get into that, I'll get through a few positives that I actually could draw from the film. The shot composition. I really liked the way that this film was shot. It was a particularly good-looking film in the sense that I liked the way that the camera was placed. I liked where it was placed. And I liked those sequences. It had a really good setup. The film itself is quite ugly. It's got this grainy, really dull filter over the entire thing, and I really don't like that. I just don't think it looks particularly good. It's very desaturated, and it feels like they drained all the colors out of certain sequences, and I really don't know why that was. It doesn't make the film scarier. It makes it more boring, if anything, because the color scheme is so drab and boring. There's nothing exciting happening on the screen, so you end up quite bored during it. And that's the way I felt when watching it. I just didn't think that it really added to the film. So I thought that was a really weird creative choice. But I did like where the camera was placed and I did like some of those sequences and the way that the camera was utilized during the film. It felt like it was its own character and I thought it was done well. But that's really where those positives end. I like the cast as well, but like I said, they're really underutilized. Andrea Riceborough, she's fantastic, but she's not given a lot. We are told the story through three different timelines. So 2004, which follows the mother who encounters the grudge curse back in Japan, and she brings it to the States. So that explains how it came all the way over to the States. Uh, she kills her family. Then we follow the families who entered their house after that. So we have um, John Cho's character. Him and his wife are expecting a child. Um, the child looks like it will be born with some uh, disability. I can't remember what the disability was, but because of early blood tests, they could tell that it was going to be disabled and they decide to keep it. 
that plot line is completely lost because it plays off in no way at all. Um, there's a nice little moment where John Cho is talking to his wife, and I thought this is the only time I've ever had any kind of inkling of a feeling during this entire film. But yeah, he has a call from his wife, and she's like, "I want to keep the child," and he's like, "I'm so happy. I I really want you to as well." Then the next morning, John Cho kills his family, and it's like, where did this come from? That's the problem with the film. It just goes from one extreme to another, and it doesn't really take the time to explain. But anyway, that's the second storyline. The third storyline is between uh, um, Lin Shay's character and her husband. Lin Shay is uh, mentally ill. I believe she has Alzheimer's. I think that's what they were getting at. It doesn't really take the time to explain what is wrong with her, but she has some sort of memory problem, and um, yeah, it's affecting her mentally. And I assume that's what it was. It was either Alzheimer's or a form of dementia. Um, like I said, it's not really explained, so I don't think it was really overly important, even though we do spend a fair bit of time with these characters. And Jackie Weaving's character, uh, who shows up as a... Uh, she She's an assisted suicide person, and um, Lin Shay's husband is trying to get um, Lin Shay to say, yeah, I actually do want to die because I'm not well. But she's seeing the ghosts of the families who the original family who came back from um, over in Japan um, who are all murdered in the house. She keeps seeing the ghosts of the child and, yeah, it just sort of keeps going from one extreme to another. But they're the three cases that we're essentially dealing with in this film. It's already extremely convoluted already. But then we also jump back to present day when Andrea Riceborough is investigating all of these and it just feels so disjointed. Also, we have another subplot with William Sadler's character, who um, stepped inside the house and was Damien Bashir's previous partner before he lost his mind um, because of the grudge curse. And yeah, that is kind of really brushed over. William Sadler is a good actor, but it just shows him for probably like five minutes and it's just him with terrible scarring after he tried to kill himself and then he tries to claw his eyes out in the mental institution. And that's really all we get with him. There's no real payoff there either. He's just the one that says to Andrea Riceborough that it's going to make you go insane. And... Yeah, it just felt really disjointed, and it's because we kept jumping between these timelines and these characters. None of them feel like they get any sort of development. Like I said, the closest that we get to any sort of character development is with John Cho, but it's to the service of nothing because he ends up killing his wife like two minutes after that phone call. So you have that touching phone call and an actual attempt at characterization, and then you jump straight into... Actually, no, he's gone insane because he saw the ghost of the little girl who died previously that he thought he was taking care of all day. It was actually a ghost, and now he's lost his mind. It just, uh, it's so stupid, and that's the irritating problem with this film is that it does have decent setup. It has a really good sense of tone. I, I, I would almost go to say that it does have a tone. Um, You can feel that dark horror tone sort of shining through little bits, little glimpses of it, but it just doesn't pay off. I think if you focus on the one family, have that family from Japan end up coming back over here, um, they have the house, the horrible incident happens, um, they die, and then John Cho um, is trying to sell it as a real estate agent. That is a really good plot set up for a grudge film. Have the dilemma between him and his wife. She's They've just found out that their child's going to have Down syndrome, and they're deciding whether they should keep the child or not. That is really good setup, and that would have been really good if that was the actual story. But instead, you add another two plot lines on top of that. Three plot lines, sorry, because I kept forgetting the William Sadler one because it's that unimportant. 
But you keep adding these plot lines on top of that, and you just end up getting bogged down and not caring about what's going on in front of you. And it just feels really wasted, and it's a real shame because, like I said, there really was an attempt to make a film here, but it's just been lost amongst the shuffle. So that's the first problem I have, and that's the general plot of the film. The over-explanation is another one. There are so many sequences bogged down with exposition of characters talking, developing backstory for each other, and all these other characters as well. But the thing is, it goes absolutely nowhere. Like I said, we have that great setup with John Cho's character, but it's in the service of nothing. We have a great setup there between Lin Shay and her husband and Jackie Weaving, and it doesn't have any payoff. It is just so drab, so boring, and it's just so non-linear and crazy, and it just doesn't pay off. There's so much going on. If you had to streamline this film to take out two of those plot lines, maybe you could have put Andrea Riceboro's storyline in there somewhere, maybe, but that even is really stretching it because I just don't think there's the time to go through all of these different storylines it just feels so bogged down and crazy like talking about it now I just think oh my god that actually all happened in this one film and the film only goes for 90 minutes like it's just absolutely absurd an example being as well of Damien Bashir's character now this is an example of that over explanation so Damien Bashir is a detective and he is also a religious nut apparently from what we see in their preceding sequences uh, nothing wrong with that it's just the first establishment that we get with Damien Bashir he goes to work in the morning. We see there's a cross above his bed. That's fine. I understand he's religious. Then he gets into his car and his glove box opens up and we see some um, prayers and books and some photos of, like, Mary. Okay, fine. That That's in the film. I, I don't think it needs to be there, but okay, we get it. He's religious. Now stop. We get it. He's religious. Um, and then again, we see when Andrea Riceboro rocks up at his house and he's watching a religious videotape on VHS of Jesus' teachings. Okay, that is just absurd. Why do we need three setups that this bloke is religious? It has literally no payoff in the film. The cross above his bed was literally all you needed to do. Maybe he looks at the cross before he goes to work. Maybe that's that's it. That's all you have to do. Fine, we understand he's religious. Then he gets into his car. His glove box opens up and there's books and, and crap that relate to him being religious. We don't need that. That has no bearing on the plot. Maybe if it had some kind of payoff, I wouldn't care because it seems like such a little gripe. But why are we showing this over and over again? And then for him to be watching some VHS tape of religious teachings, again, it really just feels forced. And it is to the service of nothing because nothing happens from here. It just shows up for no apparent reason. And that's what this film is full of. It's just full of sequences where set up, no payoff. Set up, no payoff. And it just keeps happening throughout the film. And it just really becomes bogged down just with its own law, its own rules, and this over-explanation in the service of nothing. And it just really detracts from the entire film. And it just felt very irritating whilst watching it. I see an obvious influence in this film too from The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, there's sequences at the end where Andrea Riceborough attempts to destroy the house and the curse... Um, is there and it's affecting her and she's just trying to get rid of it. She just wants it out of her life. The Landers family, um, Fiona, the mum, who was the one who came back from Japan at the start of the film, killed her family, then killed herself. Um, she's going around the house telling her um, how she did everything. And um, it's like a ghost reenactment of the murders, which felt like a very cheap ripoff of what happened in the superb haunting of Hill House. It just felt like we were seeing all these sequences played out um, so you could see what happened and 
how it happened. I don't really understand the vengeful ghost side of things as well. I don't really understand why Fiona is... I don't, I don't get why she's vengeful. Now, I understand the idea of the curse. And um, in the original Japanese uh, film and even the American remake... Uh, it's uh, a young boy and a young girl um, that were killed in the house. So it just takes the form of these this young boy and young girl, which it did at the very beginning when it opens over in Japan. But then it follows the Landers family. Now, Fiona being vengeful maybe because she was the one who was affected by the curse, but her family, we keep seeing like an angry dad. doesn't really make a lot of sense because he really shouldn't be angry because he was a victim and he was murdered as far as the daughter as well, I think her name was Miranda or something. I don't really get why she is vengeful as well. I don't think she really is, but she gets Lin Shay to kill herself at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert, who cares? But when Lin Shay kills herself at the end, the ghost smiles. And I think, why, why are you smiling? I don't get it. Why are you so vengeful? I, d I thought the whole idea of the vengeful grudge curse was that it was a curse. So it was like the actual cursed uh, children from the original murder. That's what I thought anyway, but apparently not. And it goes into this law that's established, but it's not really explained. So that's why you get these frustrating sequences where nothing really makes any sense. So there's sequences throughout the entire film that really feel like that. For instance, the very end, after the house is destroyed, we think the curse is vanished. And we get this sequence where Andrea Riceborough, it's like a montage of her living a life pretty much, and she's all happy. She gets um, her son off to school and she thinks she's giving her a hug. Then you see the son in the background. He's like, bye, mum, I'll see you this afternoon walks out the door and then it's actually the ghosts and the ghosts drag her through the house and then it literally ends with um, a live shot of the house and there's butterflies and stuff outside and there's crickets and birds chirping and it's in this overexposed um, shot of the house, uh, lots of light and I guess that she was killed by the grudge but it doesn't really make any sense because they're ghosts. They're not meant to be physically touching these people not at any time during the film did a person physically, was a person physically touched by one of the ghosts or the grudge itself. That doesn't happen during the film, but at the end we have Andrea Riceborough's character being dragged down the hallway by her hair. I don't know. I, I don't think it was honestly that quick. I don't think that it was an actual person. I believe it was the ghost of Fiona and her husband because we see the girl, I think it was Miranda. I honestly can't remember. Um, at the end of the hallway. So I gathered that it was, yeah, I think it was them. I honestly do. I don't really understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I really don't get it. Um, because the way that the curse worked during the film was that it would actually affect Andrea Riceborough's character and she would kill her son. That's the way I thought that it was going to work. But that's not actually what happens at the end of the film. So you establish this law and these rules during the film, but it doesn't actually work like that. So when you have this ending and you establish new rules, it just makes the 90 minutes that preceded it literally make no sense. So that's why it just really frustrates me because they established law and everything, but they couldn't take the time to actually look back at it and think, hang on a second, that makes literally no sense. That makes no sense. And that makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense during the entire film. And that's the irritating thing with this film. I can see potential there, but it's just overbearing in the sense that everything that happens during this film is in the service of literally nothing. And when we finish the film, no one's learned every, anything at all. Damien Bashir's character doesn't even have a, a finale. He's set up as this religious guy. Um, his partner ends up crazy and he won't step into the house because he knows there's something up with the house. But 
there's no payoff. Like we have all that set up, but there's literally no payoff. He gives her the advice to burn down the house, but that happens off camera as well. We don't even hear him say that. We just see her get in the car and she's like, we're making a stop. Make sure you stay in the car because I'm going to burn down this house. And if you step foot in the house, then things are going to go, you know, crazy. And then, yeah, she burns down the house, but Damien Bashir just is nowhere to be seen. He doesn't even come with her. He's just like, go and burn down the house. You know, I'm a, I'm a detective. But I don't really care. Go and burn down the house. Do what you want. There's also set up as well that I didn't bring up with Andrea Riceboro's character. Her and her son have recently moved to this town because her husband passed away. Um, there's not really an explanation as to how that happened or what happened. Maybe it was an accident. Honestly, don't know because the movie doesn't tell you. That's another example of something. You give this character a backstory, but it doesn't really influence her decisions or anything during the film. She disappears for about a 20-minute chunk when it keeps going back to John Cho's character in this other timeline. Uh, he plays a character. I'm pretty sure it's like Frank Spencer or something. He's a real estate agent. Um, or Stephen Spencer. Maybe it was Stephen Spencer. I don't know. His last name was definitely Spencer. Um, and he's a real estate agent. And yeah, that was his setup kind of thing. And I really liked his storyline. I, I didn't have a problem with until it ended where he killed his wife and it just felt like it was in the service of nothing because it didn't matter. It was kind of tragic, but we didn't really spend enough time with these characters for it to be that tragic ending. So I didn't really care. Um, and that was part of the problem. Like I said, this film has really good setup for certain aspects, but it just doesn't pay them off. Now, this film, like I said, was really ugly. I hated the music. There's an overbearing number of jump scares as well. And you know how I feel about those jump scares. I hate them. So when I was watching this film and there was a jump scare, every couple of minutes, I was really taken out of the film. I just hate them. I just think they're extremely lazy and they really don't actually add any sense of terror or they're not scary. They're really not scary. They really just, I, I, I just really hate it. I honestly just really dislike it. And the irritating point of a, a jump scare is that it really releases all tension. So once the jump happens, afterwards you feel a bit more relaxed when you're watching the film. So as the film progresses, you're not really at this heightened tension. Now, it can be done well. Like I said, James Wan is a really good director when it comes to jump scares. He utilizes jump scares well. Scott Derrickson as well, I think, does a, a good jump scare. But I really don't think the jump scares here were any good at all. They were really predictable. There was... One scare that was kind of interesting, and I didn't mind it. Um, it was kind of funny too, though, the way that it paid off. But um, Andrea Riceboro is on the lounge, and she's reading these articles about uh, the house and its relationship to all these other murders that have happened. And she's sitting there, and her um, white Labrador keeps licking her foot, and she keeps laughing. She's like, don't, don't. And then um, it doesn't do it for a while, and she read, keeps reading and reading. And she's like, I told you to stop. And she looks down, and the dog's not there, and the dog's standing over at the doorway like wagging its tail looking at her. And I was like, that's pretty good. But then it just adds that jump scare noise. And you're like, oh, okay, that didn't need to be there. That was already pretty freaky. Why did you just burst my eardrums with that ridiculous noise? And that's pretty much what all the scares are during this film. So they just feel really hammy and they just do not have any bearing at all. And it just really irritates me because after I left this film, I was irritated more so than I was terrified or scared which I should be watching a horror movie. So thank you for that, The Grudge 2020. You failed on literally every level. So props to you. And I'm glad this movie flopped at the box office because it doesn't deserve any money. doesn't deserve your time. It deserves literally nothing. So don't go see this movie because it really does suck and I hated it. 
Okay, so here's my verdict for The Grudge. The Grudge has become a derivative property. The film is filled with cliches, boring set pieces, and really no a nonsensical plot. The plot doesn't make any sense. I was bored and annoyed watching this utterly pointless remake, and I hate this film. I'm going to give it a 1 out of 10. I didn't think I hated it as much as I did until I started talking about it, and then I thought, you know what? I actually really wanted to leave with about 20 minutes left of this film. I looked at the time, I was like, my God, there's still 20 minutes left. I reckon I could just leave right now. I know exactly what's going to happen. It did surprise me in the fact that she was dragged down the hallway by a ghost at the end of the movie, and it just literally ended mid-shot. It felt like a Sopranos-type ending, but at least the Sopranos earned that ending, ending at mid-sentence, where this film just ends mid-shot, no explanation, doesn't matter, who cares, everyone checked out by that point. Um, The audience I saw it with uh, wasn't a big audience, but everyone around me kind of looked bored, no one was really scared. Uh, There was a heavily pregnant lady in front of me, and I thought that the scenes with John Cho and stuff might be a bit heavy, especially for a pregnant lady, but... That's that's where I was at during that film. I was more interested in what the audience was doing than my actual interpretation of the film. I was like, that lady might be a bit uncomfortable right now watching these sequences. Hey, that kid over there looks like he's too young to be watching this movie. There's people behind me won't shut up. But that's my thought process during that film. I was just like, so checked out by the end of it. I've never been that checked out watching a movie. Um, honestly, I, I don't think I have. I can normally make it through. Even Black Christmas, which I hated last year, at least during Black Christmas, when I finished it, I was like, you know what? I wasn't actually that irritated with the actual plot of the film, and I guess I could watch it until the very end because I wasn't bored for the last part of that film, at least, I guess. I don't know. Black Christmas sucks too, but I I think I enjoyed Black Christmas more than I enjoyed The Grudge, and I hated Black Christmas, so I don't know what that's saying, and I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I think I lost my mind during this review, but... Yeah, guys, don't watch The Grudge. Please go and watch everything else but The Grudge. I, I really don't care. Just go and watch something. Go home and watch something. You don't have to go to the cinemas this weekend. Um, Underwater was good, though, so maybe go and check out that. But just don't watch The Grudge, please. All right, that's the end of my review of The Grudge. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure I've lost my mind during this review. But it's time to get into the home media release of the week, so that's exciting. So let's talk about Congo. So this week's home media releases of the week are Congo and The Running Man. So I did say just Congo in the intro, but I did receive another copy of another movie from Umbrella Entertainment. So I thought I might as well just talk about both of them um, as I've got the chance to. So the first one is Congo, which is based on the Michael Crichton novel uh, starring Dylan Walsh, Laura Linney, Ernie Hudson, Joe Don Baker and the legendary Tim Curry and was directed here by uh, Frank Marshall and is a release from Paramount Pictures. So like I said, this is the first time this one has been on Blu-ray, which is really cool. So I'm going to read what it says on the back of the box here. They've eluded heat-seeking missiles, gone eyeball to eyeball with enraged 5,000-pound hippos, hacked through a jungle curtain. Still, the explanation continues. Amy, a gorilla who was part of a university learning experiment, is the last returning home. A professor, played by Dylan Walsh, Electronics expert, played by Laura Linney. A guide, played by Ernie Hudson. An explorer, played by Tim Curry. And others follow the scampering ape. They know she will lead them to a place that's more than her home. It's the site of the fabled lost city of Zinji. And it's diamond mines. But what they don't know can be fatal. Once they enter Zinji, 
They'll be the endangered species themselves. From the bestseller Michael Crichton comes an event-packed adventure filled with state-of-the-art technology and primal fear at its best. Like I said, this is a film I hadn't actually seen before. I had heard of it. Um, it is a notorious cult classic among a lot of cinephiles, especially in that 1990s era of cinema as well. And because of its cast as well, it does receive a lot of attention. And I think because of Michael Crichton's uh, legendary status at that point, especially with the release of Jurassic Park in 1993, um, this one sort of falls into line with that. Now, this is a really entertaining film. It's not a particularly good film, but I am glad I had the chance to see it on Blu-ray. It does look really good too. And there are a few little um, extras here, just the teaser trailer and theatrical trailer. And if you're a fan of remastered trailers, which we all know Umbrella Entertainment are fantastic at doing, then this is the one for you. Now, this is a pretty by-the-numbers story. You get what's going to happen. The eight befriends those who are good in the group and the money-hungry ones like um, Tim Curry's character are the ones that are going to, you know, skew the group in different directions. So you know exactly where the story is going to go. But I think for the most part, it's just a really cool release. And I like that it's on Blu-ray because we haven't had a chance to actually see it on Blu-ray. So I think it's a really entertaining film. And I think... It knows exactly what it is, so that's why you can have a bit of fun with it. And I really did enjoy myself watching it, um, and I would recommend it. Uh, Laura Linney's really good in it too. I suppose we all know her now because she is a pretty big star. Um, if you haven't seen Ozark, she's really good in that, and she pairs really well with Jason Bateman in that um, in that film, uh, in that TV series, sorry. Um, but here she is really good, and it's cool seeing Ernie Hudson too because we all love Ernie Hudson, you know. Ghostbusters, man, it's it's the thing. So seeing him on screen and something else is a bit weird, but it's also kind of cool too to see him in that. But um, yeah, this is a really good release, guys. So as a Blu-ray, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. As a film, it gets a 6 out of 10. But like I said, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. And a lot of cinephiles do like this one. So if you get the chance, definitely pick this one up. I've left a link down below for you to pick it up from Umbrella Entertainment's website. They've got 20% off at the moment on their orders. So it's a good time to pick it up. Like I said, though, guys, it's a really good release, and seeing the legendary Tim Curry as well, hamming it up as an explorer, is really cool. We all love Tim Curry, so it's really cool seeing him in that. So that's Congo. The second film I have to talk about here is The Running Man. Now, The Running Man is a film that I really enjoy. It's a guilty pleasure again from the 90s, but what I really like about this film is that it's just really self-aware and has so much fun. This is one of my favorite Schwarzenegger films. He has a lot out there. The Last Action Hero as well, I put in high regards. It's more of a parody of that action genre. But The Running Man really does some cool things, and I'll get into that when I talk about it. But The Running Man was directed by Paul Michael Glazer and stars the legendary Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I'm going to read what it says on the front here because I quite like this. It is the year 2019. Last year? That's pretty cool. Uh, the Running Man is a deadly game. No one has survived, but Schwarzenegger has yet to be played. I really like that. That just makes me laugh. So I'll read the back of it, and let's get into this one. So the year is 2019, and the United States is under its first totalitarian government. Books have been burned, records destroyed, schools closed, and personal freedoms abolished. There is, though, one relic of the 20th century which has survived into the present, and it is demented even more powerful medium than ever before, television. But this television is a new and twisted fashion where the most popular program on the air is a game show called The Running Man, a deadly futuristic cat and mouse carnival in which contestants battle for the ultimate prize, survival. Tonight, Arnold Schwarzenegger is The Running Man. 
He's playing for the prize, his life. From now on, the rules are going to change forever. Based on the story by Stephen King under his pen name, Richard Backman, and also starring Yepet Cotto, Mary, these are all names I'm definitely going to pronounce wrong, but Maria Conchita Alonso, Jesse Ventura, Jim Brown, Mike uh, Mick Fleetwood, uh, D. Wizzle Zappa, and The Running Man is an uh, um, unrelenting futuristic action thriller. Like I said, guys, this is a really fun film. This is a film that a lot of people haven't seen, which is a bit disappointing, but it is such a thoroughly entertaining film, and I really like it for what it does well, and that is it understands exactly what it is and has a lot of fun with it. Now, I want to compare it to a lot of other TV shows who have done one-off episodes. There's one of Star Trek in The Next Generation. I can't remember the episode title. There's one in actually the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series from the early 2000s as well. And it's pretty much putting a character in a situation where they've got to do something to survive. It's kind of like The Hunger Games, I guess. In a way, it's broadcast for television. And I guess The Hunger Games definitely gets a lot of its inspiration from this story. A lot of people say Battle Royale, probably cinematically, but Battle Royale would have also taken a lot of inspiration from The Running Man too. Um, And Stephen King's writing in this film... It's really interesting. He plays with similar themes as he did in The Lawnmower Man, and I like that. He uses the government as this big, scary villain, and he also uses television as a means of, I guess, expressing that fear, and I think that's really clever, um, and I think that goes into a lot of what Stephen King is really good at, and that is just really tight-knit writing, and he is a really good writer, as we know, one of the most prolific of all time, but I really do enjoy what he was able to do with The Running Man, Pairing with Arnold Schwarzenegger as well, because in the 90s, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Bruce Willis, the action gurus were really at the height of their powers, and they were the ones that a lot of people were, I guess, admiring at the time. I think we look at Hollywood at these this day and age, and we don't really have that many movie stars as such. I mean, we still have big A-list names that people flock to the cinema to see, but back in the day, especially in the 90s, there wasn't as many mediums out there. It was either television or film where now you have so many different streaming services and things are so more easily accessed, I guess, compared to what they used to be, especially in the 90s. So you have a look at films like this, and this would have just been sold purely on star power. You have Stephen King's name attached as a writer. Cool, I'm sold. But then you also add Arnold Schwarzenegger, and at the time you have a look at the films that he was doing, like Predator, and like I said, you had The Last Action Hero. You just had so many big films come out from Arnold Schwarzenegger, like Total Recall as well. You're just so many, like, and it's ridiculous to think of, like, looking back at it now. But I guess our modern day perception of the movie star comes from people like Robert Downey Jr., uh, The Rock as well. The Rock is probably the closest that you can compare that Stallone and Schwarzenegger model to. But Schwarzenegger in a film like this, like it was such a taboo thing to release at the time. I mean, it still holds an R rating today. And I'm, the eyes I'm holding the Blu-ray at the moment, that is an updated R rating as well from the MPAA of Australia, which is our classifications board. But it is really crazy to think that even in this day and age, this film still holds that R rating. Like that's crazy to me. Um, but it is such an enjoyable film and I just really enjoy it. And I think that it has a lot to offer, especially politically. We still have so many of these themes that definitely plague us today, and I think they're probably more realistic today. I mean, 2019 is the time frame, so that hasn't really aged well with the film, but, I mean, it was a prediction, I guess. It's something that you look at, like the Blade Runner, um, the first Blade Runner film, of, of course, as well, which picked 
depicted 2019 as the same sort of futuristic, dangerous world. Back to the Future did it as well. It's more of a prediction. It's not meant to be, this is exactly where we're going to be and this is exactly how things are going to be. But I think it does it really well and I really did enjoy this film. So as a film, I'm going to give The Running Man an 8 out of 10 and as a Blu-ray release, it gets a 10 out of 10 for me because having this on Blu-ray is just such a cool prospect for me. Like, I don't know. I didn't think I was going to own this movie on Blu-ray, to be honest. But the fact I do is really cool. So thank you to Umbrella Entertainment for sending me both movies this week both Congo and The Running Man. I've left links down below, guys, so you can pick up both of these titles. But like I said, they're such good titles. I would highly recommend that you pick them up if you get the chance. Um, yeah, they're just thoroughly entertaining, and I just really do enjoy them. Um, so that brings that review portion of the podcast to an end. Um, but I do have a mailbag question, and that is, what are my thoughts on the new Saw movie, which is called Spiral? It got its first trailer during the week, which is really cool. Um, and also got a movie poster, which I really like the movie poster more so than the trailer. But I'll get into it. So Chris Rock wrote a story um, regarding a new Saw film, and he went to Lionsgate with it and said, what do you guys think? Lionsgate came back and said, yeah, we actually really like that. Let's make it a movie. Now, Chris Rock is a comedian. He has a comedic background, so it's very much in his wheelhouse, I guess, to stick to that comedic road. I mean, he did The Week Of recently. He also wrote uh, Top 5, and I didn't mind Top 5. I thought it was actually quite entertaining and very funny. Um, but he is a really good writer, but more in that comedic space. And now I noticed that uh, he did write this uh, story initially, but um, Josh Stolberg... Uh, the writer behind many other horror films. Uh, Piranha 3D always comes to mind because I just remember his name on the poster. Um, but he has gone and done a doctored version of that story. So it's not exactly it's not exactly Chris Rock's story. So when everyone's like, oh, Chris Rock, he's a terrific writer. Chris Rock's good, don't get me wrong, but this isn't his story as such. This is, I guess, a doctored version of his story. So it still does have that influence, and I'm sure the general gist of the story follows that. Chris Rock's actually playing the lead in this film too. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. I knew he was in the cast, but I didn't expect him to be the lead. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's in it too. To hear him say in the trailer, um, let's play a game, motherfucker, that was really funny, and it made me laugh a lot. As soon as I heard that, I was like, I'm sold. I don't care what this movie is anymore. Just show me more of Samuel L. Jackson doing that. But... The fact that these two actors are actually in a Saw movie is pretty cool. Saw has never really attracted huge stars. I mean, the first one did manage to get Danny Glover, but at the time in 2004, Danny Glover wasn't really a big star. I mean, we're post that Lethal Weapons stage at this point in his career. So having Danny Glover there, I mean, it's cool, but it doesn't necessarily mean a lot. So I think it was really cool to see... Um, both of them in this film because, I mean, that that's a pretty big cast. Now, we have Saw Mainstake directing it again. Um, he has directed quite a few of the films, so I'm going to pull his name up because I actually forget it. Um, but he did direct Saw 2, Saw 3, um, Saw 4. Um, what is his name? Darren Lynn Bosman was his name. Uh, and, yeah, he directed Saw 2. I'm just having a look live on air. Saw 2, Saw 3, and Saw 4. Yeah, I was right. So he directed those films. He's also directed some pretty bad films as well. 11, 11, 11. I don't like it all. Uh, he directed one of the segments in Tales of Halloween. Um, and he also directed St. Agatha, which I haven't seen yet. Eagle Entertainment did release that last month, but I still haven't had the chance to pick up that one yet. So 
I do like his direction. I think he's quite interesting as a director, and I think St. Agatha's positive reviews um, definitely would have helped him land this job again with uh, Spiral, the Book of Saw, which is what it's called. Um, but I did like the prospect. So the general idea, what I can gather from this um, trailer, was that it follows the idea of the jigsaw killer or someone who is imitating those kills because I guess it's still in the same universe um, and is killing police officers. And, yeah, they're investigating it. And I, I do like that idea for a story. I was quite interested to see how that one would play out. And I think um, yeah, it's an interesting prospect and I, I did enjoy that aspect of the film for sure. Um, and I think the trailer... Definitely doesn't give it too much away. It's a good teaser trailer. We have the Saw music redefined, I suppose, for a new generation. But I am a big Saw fan in the sense, like, I understand that the, some of the films are bad, especially the final chapter. I actually really liked Jigsaw a lot. Um, it was very close to actually cracking my top 10 films of the year. Now, I know a lot of people didn't like Jigsaw, but I liked what it did. It did something different, and it was a lot of fun. It was also really well-directed and was a really good-looking film. Um but some of the Saw films, I mean, they did go off the rails. They went a bit crazy there for a while. And a lot of the story doesn't make sense. And I mean, if you look at it in a linear fashion, it really doesn't make sense. But at the same time, I just enjoy those films. I guess it's my, it is my guilty pleasure franchise. I really enjoy them. I own all of them on Blu-ray. I'm crazy, I know, but I just really do enjoy the Saw films. So yeah, I, I guess I'm looking forward to this film. I, I think Chris Rock could have done a good job with this story. And, I, I mean, like I said, Josh Stolberg has done a re-edit of that script. Um, I like that they're bringing someone who knows the Saw franchise very well back to direct. He directed Saw 2, 3, and 4. I really like Saw 2. Um, it's probably my second favourite film behind the first one. But I am interested to see what happens. I, I like the cast. I love Samuel L. Jackson. And Chris Rock, I mean, I haven't seen him in anything since the week of, and I didn't really like that movie. So... Yeah, I'm keen to see how this one turns out. But that's pretty much it, guys. That brings this episode to a close. So thank you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Also, keep those mailbag questions coming to ozmoviegeek at gmail.com. And yeah, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that jazz down below. But until next time, guys, peace out.